Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we discuss emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. On today's show, we have Bill Gallagher, CEO of Systems Evolution, Inc., a business consulting and technology consulting firm. And he would have had the head of his New York office, Jason Davis, but Jason is at home taking care of a brand new baby. Congratulations, Jason. Sorry you couldn't be with us. And Bill, I'm delighted to have you with me this morning. Thank you for having us, Selene. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your show today. So we always start the show by talking with our CEO guests about the trends in their industry that they think are important for other CEOs to be aware of. So I'll toss that question to you. I think that uh, what we're seeing in our industry in particular, and I believe everyone is, is seeing this, is the challenges of acquiring and retaining high, top quality talent uh, for your organization. Um, that seems to be a bottleneck uh, for most organizations these days uh, for growth. Even our clients are seeing or having a hard time attracting the talent. And Honestly, I think it's just a, a function as the economy has picked up. The uh, competition for that top-tier talent has also uh, has also heated up. And this is a very common theme um, that I've been seeing on the show over the past uh, few few weeks and few months. Folks have been talking a lot about how important their team has been to contributing to their success. You know, they I've asked a number of times, what is what are the things that have made you know allowed you to achieve the rapid growth and everybody is everybody without exception has actually said that it's come down to their team. So how do we get beyond the cliches about talent acquisition? Tell us a little bit more specifically about what this trend means and how CEOs go around uh go about acquiring and retaining talent. So you you touched on it for us anyway. It's um and and not to not to use the cliche but you know it's all <laughs> about team and, and if you had a leader that that came in here and said, "Oh, it's all about me." Uh, you know, they're probably not telling you the truth and they certainly don't have enough humility to be uh, a leader for very long. But uh, I would have to say that leveraging your team uh, for talent acquisition is going to be a, a key component to uh, being successful in this uh, marketplace where we've got just a ton of competition for, for quality talent. So um, it, that's one of the things that we've uh, had a lot of success with. Uh, our best uh Candidates come from referrals from within and uh, networking opportunities that our employees are actually out there making and uh, bringing folks to the table. So you said talent acquisition. You didn't say retention. So when you talk about talent acquisition, why didn't didn't retention come up? Why why do you think that that's not a, an important part of the trend, or maybe it is? And it, it absolutely is. I just think it's two separate two separate uh, paths. So you you've obviously got the the uh, challenges of of acquiring the talent but then yeah absolutely you've got to keep them you've got to keep the attrition low if it's truly the people that that you want to work with and you want to be business partners with you've got to uh ensure that you've got the culture in place to retain those people and 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 it goes back to the talent acquisition piece i think uh you've got to you've got a responsibility to vet people to make sure that they're going to fit into your culture uh, and also encourage them to vet you to make sure that it's a, it's a mutual fit. And uh, that's one thing at Systems Evolution that we, we tell everybody up front. We call our interview process the gauntlet. And it's, uh, while it sounds intimidating, it's, it's really um, designed so that 
people that are interviewing with us also have an equal opportunity to vet us to make sure this is the last job that they want to have. And I think that that's very important. But as far as uh, retaining top talent, I think, uh, you know, again, it goes back to the culture of the firm. And it's got to be well-defined. you got to be able to articulate it up front so that they know what they're walking into. And then uh, also, you know, that, that this is a good fit for them. They have to make that educated decision. So, you know, if we try to break down this cliche a little bit and, and you know, get to the, the next level, CEOs say it's all about the team. I have a great team. You know, team, 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 team. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, what separates the CEOs who are able to build this high-performing team from the ones who don't, don't you know, build a high-performing team and why are some people able to do it and some people are not? Uh, you know, I can only speak for myself and, and what I know is that uh, I'm a much better leader if I include people from the organization and, and I, you know, I'm constantly asking them for their opinion and it's not that I'm necessarily going to always go that direction, but, you know, I think having that input from my team <laughs> and from my colleagues is uh, important as a leader and it, it sort of frames the way that, that our culture uh, it, uh, go, it goes forward uh, for systems evolution. And so you mentioned culture. Mm-hmm. How, how do you go about building a culture that people want to stick with and, and you know, that generates referrals, internal referrals for, for talent? So I think it, I think everybody's going to be a little different, and it depends on what, what your goals and objectives are in business. Uh, if you look at systems evolution, we've been in business for 23 years. And I have to give uh, I have to give credit where credit's due, and, and that really lies within our founder uh, Dan Pierce. He uh, came out of a uh, out of the large consulting and systems integration business back in the uh, uh, early '90s. Um, became um, disheartened with the way that they they treated their employees, as well as the fact that there was no loyalty back from the employees to the company, and so. You know, he was going to get out of the business completely or he was going to build something that he was proud of and felt like he had that loyalty. And I think uh, if you were to ask him, if you were sitting here today, if you were to ask him, he would say, uh, you know, if I can just build a loyal team of people, a small group that I can work with, I'll be happy with that. Well, as it turns out, you know, seven offices later, um, he found out that there were a lot of people actually that he he could uh, build that loyalty and trust with and uh you know, and, and grow a, a, a thriving business. And so uh, I think it all started with that, you know, building the foundational components of the culture up front, uh, being able to define those early on and what it meant to him and what it meant to people that uh, were of like mind that he was attracting to come to work there. So um, I think that that was a big component early on. And then it, as the, as the company grew and as it's progressed, you know we've maintained uh, we maintain our culture by sticking to some guiding principles and uh, you know kind of going back to the talent uh, excuse me talent acquisition um, piece of this, uh, making sure that the people that we're hiring are uh, you know an absolute fit for our culture. So what are those guiding principles? So, uh, you know, consistency, consistency, commitment, and collaboration are the three guiding principles that, uh, that Dan started and founded the company on. And, uh, you know, I, it, probably a longer conversation than what we have today, but, uh, 
if you think about it, those are the things, those are the kind of the, the bedrock that, that the company was built on. And so we look for people that are going to be committed to not only their clients, but also to systems evolution for a long, long period of time. We look for people that are very collaborative in nature because that's a, a big component of our business as well as of our culture, quite frankly. And so we look for those people that are, uh, natural collaborators, um, natural networkers, that sort of thing. And how do you operationalize it? So you say that you want people or you want these uh, these values to show up in your company. How do you actually take it beyond the conceptual level and have have it be operational inside the business? Well, I think it, it has to start with leadership and, you know, the leadership has got to be bought into it and they've got to live it and breathe it every day. Um, that that then you know gets passed down to to the consultants and and the other employees of systems evolution but uh you know i i think that it's it starts with the leadership of the organization and i I would say that we're very consistent we're all on the same page even though we're geographically dispersed um that's been a big component and and as far as the nuts and bolts of it i mean we we spend a lot of time thinking about you know when we're going to get together, what we're going to talk about and how does that support, you know, our culture and that sort of thing as a leadership team. And then also, uh, as a, uh, as individual offices get together every couple of weeks, um, to discuss business, you know, how, how do we, how do we infuse that culture back into those meetings and that sort of thing? So that it's top of mind and it's not just, uh, it's just not lip service that we, you know, throw out there on a website. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at hiring people and you're looking for these these attributes in your in your talent as you're going through the talent acquisition process, how do you actually look for these these qualities in the candidates? You know, the the best example is to uh, find folks that have actually done it somewhere else in in their past. Now, that's not always. Uh, we've hired plenty of great people that came out of. Uh, industries or other consulting firms that uh, didn't have that collaborative nature that uh, that you know want and need to be part of a team and that sort of thing. So uh, they they exist out there, but you know our best litmus test for that is is that can you give us some examples of of where you've operated in an environment similar to this where it's highly collaborative? We're asking for everybody to uh, participate in in growing the business, and you know we didn't really touch on it, but you know part of the the component for us anyway that supports our culture is that we're an employee-owned business. And so you get people that are all um, have a vested interest in the success of the business, and that makes a huge difference in your culture. Hmm. When did uh, when did Dan make that transition? I'm assuming that Dan made the transition. Right? Uh, from what to what? From being founder, owner, to CEO, CEO to having the company be employee-owned. Well, so from day one. Um, his, his model was that I'm going to hire people that I want to be in business with, that I want to be business partners with, and I'm going to give them, I'm going to take a smaller piece of the pie for myself in, in hopes that this grows to a, a larger pie, but I'm going to include all these people that I trust and, and have loyalty to, uh, in that ownership model. So from day one, that was his vision. Oh, and how many people do you, do you know how many people he started the business with? Uh, just a few. I mean, you know, hand, you know, grassroots, organic, handful of people that he he knew, and uh, you know, quickly grew the Cincinnati office, and then, uh, and I'm probably gonna screw my dates up a little bit, but in 2001, 
Uh, Atlanta was our our uh, first office outside of Cincinnati, uh, closely followed by uh, Boston, Phoenix, Dallas, and then more, more recently we've opened uh, New York and Chicago. And so when did you come into to the Atlanta office? Uh, I came in, interestingly enough, in 2005. So I in June, I had my 10-year anniversary with the firm, started as a consultant. Um, I've been a consultant all my life, or all, all my career, rather, um, with the exception of a couple years I went into industry just to get off the road. And uh, I, quite frankly, was, was I, I got burnt out from industry pretty quickly. The uh, I, I longed to get back into a consulting role where I was, you know, solving problems for people and I wasn't dealing with HR issues all the time and that sort of thing. And so... I uh, found Systems Evolution on Monster.com. Of all people, uh, so you can get a job on Monster.com. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. Um, and so I, I found them and uh, applied for the job. And I was living in Cincinnati at the time. And and my first face-to-face interview was with Dan Pierce, the founder of the company. And I think that uh, what really resonated with me and why I wanted to join the company and I was all bought in after, you know, an hour conversation with you him. You drank was, the Kool-Aid. I drank the Kool-Aid. And and the reason was that here's a guy who was willing to take a smaller piece of the pie and give out more of the pie to the, the to the folks that he that he uh, worked with in hopes that it would grow the company. And so that's a that's a huge leap of faith if you're a founder of a company and you're trying to grow something um, that you're not trying to hold on to all that ownership to yourself. Well, it, you said that you know he, he was big on loyalty and trust, and that's a very um, concrete demonstration oh, of loyalty and trust in, yeah, in but, your employees. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, great to talk about it, but I mean, to if you if I'm putting myself in his shoes, um, then that's that I would imagine that was a tough thing to uh, to do. And and Dan is still very involved with our business. He's still an advisor to me, and and I um, he and I are. are personal friends as well as uh, business partners. So so when did you, and or how did you become CEO? So uh, again, to Dan's credit, um, you know, he didn't want to be the founder that was either, you know, died at his desk or taken out in a straitjacket. So he, uh, you know, he thought about succession planning and, and uh, I had been uh, working as the managing director for our Atlanta office for about five years, and he decided that uh, he wanted to step back and take a lesser role and kind of prep for uh, the next 20 years of systems evolution. And so I was fortunate enough that he tapped me for that role. So how long ago did you kind of know that you were being groomed to be the CEO of the company? You know, I think any of my peers probably could have also stepped in and done the job. Um, and, and so we don't have a formal process of, of grooming necessarily, but, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, we all do a good job of, um, working with one another, making sure that everybody that understands the business and, and, you know, from a very low level in the company all the way up. So, uh, I, I don't know that it was by specific design, but just by the way that, you know, we're, we are an employee owned company. Um, where we employ open book management, which is also sort of a unique, uh, uh, unique piece of our business. And so for those reasons, I was very, uh, I was very up to speed, I guess, on, on the business. And so it, 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 it wasn't, uh, I won't say it was an easy transition, but it, it certainly could have been a lot, a lot harder had I not been privy to all of the information within the business. How long have you been CEO? CEO one year, August 1st. So, yeah. Right. And, 
you know, as as you look at that process or you think about that process of of Dan um, transitioning, I mean, you really are the successor, right? And, and people talk about successorship as an as a as an exit model for um, business owners, but often it doesn't seem to to happen. As you were saying, there are a lot of um, CEO founders who just die in the saddle, right? Sure. And I would love it if you would weigh in on why you think that's the case and what it was that made that transition work. So I would like to think that I've got enough humility and you know lack of hubris to say that if I were in that, that same position, I would want to do what what's best for the for the business, you know, long term. Um, but I think that that's what it boils down to is is that I think. You know, you got somebody that maybe built this company out of the backseat of his car like Dan did. Uh, and I think that it gets difficult for people to let go of the range. You know, they're used to doing it. They're used to being in charge. It was their baby. They have that ownership component of it. And I think it's tough for them to, to release the reins, so to speak. Uh, since you use the saddle reference, I'll use the reins. <laughs> um, I, uh, Dan didn't have that problem. It, I would say that uh, when I took the job on, I, I was probably braced for for more, you know, more uh, of him not releasing the reins. But he's been very supportive, and and it's been a it's been a good transition for us. Now I think that you know you asked why people probably die in a saddle. I think it's because they don't always necessarily do maybe what's best for the business, or um, maybe there's. Uh, Maybe they don't have the right people in place to uh, necessarily take the reins as well, and you know they worry about what the business, where the business is going to go long term. And so, as you, as in a, an employee-owned company, did the other employee, the other employees, get to weigh in on your transition into the leadership? No. So it's it's. While it's employee owned, it's not a democracy. So it, uh, you know, somebody, somebody's got to be, you know, in charge of the asylum at the end of the day. And so there are, uh, <laughs> there are, we, we do have some voting components to it. So if you're an employee owner, you do get to vote on who's on your board of directors in the local offices and that sort of thing. But for management decisions like that, um, no, those aren't, you know, voted on by the employees. So it, it would be a little chaotic, I think, if that happens. So. And you mentioned open book management. Tell us a little bit about what that is. So, and I can't, I'm, I can't remember the exact reference uh, where I where I read about it. But uh, the only other company that I've seen that really uses the open book management is uh, was a paving company. I think they were out of Illinois, and it was another employee owned firm where a guy uh, started a paving company and he started uh, giving out ownership uh, and. Uh, he leveraged open book management. Now, the theory behind open book management is, is that particularly if you've got an employee-owned company and and they have, you know, voting rights, for instance, to vote on a board, you want to make sure that they're empowered to make the right decisions and have uh, have the information at hand in order to make you know the right decision when they're voting for a particular person, that sort of thing. But ours goes a little deeper than that. Um, because we are employee-owned, we, we're a very flat organization. We don't have a lot of hierarchy. Uh, we want to make sure the employees have the information so that they can make certain decisions on, on the ground in real time and not have to uh, run a lot of things up the chain of command. Again, there's still, you know, there's still a general manager in every office. There's you know, the, the leadership team and that sort of thing that make overall strategic and uh, decisions for the company. But 
uh, we do want people to understand, you know, how dollar flows through through our business, how uh, we go to market, you know, why is collaboration and why is our culture so important to our success? Um, all of those things uh, are it, it, you couldn't you couldn't achieve that without open book management, without being pretty transparent about you know the financials or you know, what the strategy is uh, from a longer-term perspective. How does it actually work? Do you guys send out um, communications or newsletters that have all this information in it? We, we do have newsletters, and uh, we have, you know, obviously if you're a shareholder in the company, you get shareholder statements and that sort of thing. But uh, I think more organically it happens at a local level where um, our offices meet as a team, um, even our larger offices, which might have over 60 people in them, they uh, they meet as a team every week or every two weeks, and they discuss business uh, at hand. You know, they discuss pursuits, they discuss candidates. Uh, we discuss uh, things that might be affecting our culture. We discuss even things like uh, how are we getting involved in the community and volunteer efforts and that sort of thing. It's 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 all about you know the business of systems evolution. Um, at a local level. Now, we also, on a quarterly basis... Or Are they kind of like town hall meetings almost? Um, I don't, wouldn't consider them town hall meetings. Um, it's, you know, usually over over dinner or, um, you know, a- after the workday's over, we get together and there's there's a specific agenda that, that the GM for that office uh, follows. But uh, it's, uh, it's empowering to the consultants to, I think, to have that information so that they can make decisions on the ground. The other thing that we do is uh, we review our financials, I mean, down to a pretty... Um, pretty significant detail uh, and we encourage people to ask questions so they know how much we spent in a local office on you know our local admin expense and they're encouraged to ask questions about it mm-hmm. does it do our salaries and all that transparent as well does everybody know so, how much everybody else is being paid so our model the way that our model works they could probably figure it out I mean we don't specifically line item out everybody but we know how much consultant labor is costing or we know how much the line on line item on there for management uh, salaries and that sort of thing so it yeah I mean it's not down to that level of transparency but you know as a percentage of revenue what what that's uh, and and an exact number what that's uh, costing and so are the consultants also empowered to hold the leadership accountable so, like, let's say something comes up and it's controversial in one of these in one of these meetings. Like, how does that work? So, the the, the managing director for that office ultimately is the one that's held accountable uh, for the success or failure of that office, and so he or she gets to make the the final call on things. Uh, but you know, I'm holding them accountable for for those things as well as their board of directors for each office. So, uh, yeah, I mean, within reason. Again, it's not a democracy. It's it's uh, you know, there's still got to be some organization. It can't be uh, just a free-for-all. And I think everybody knows that the managing director for that office has the uh, final call and say on things. So, yeah, so I can see how that kind of forum could create the loyalty and trust that Dan originally envisioned in the company. Um, but how do you tread that line between wanting to empower your consultants and wanting to empower people and then still being able to maintain maintain the order? Like, how do you decide what goes into the the democracy or the you know the consensus and the the democratic forum and what do you um kind of maintain some dictate, yeah. dictatorship over for sure. lack of a better <laughs> yeah well i hope it's not a dictatorship i hope everybody's building consensus but uh 
so the only thing that, that, that people actually vote on in our firm is who's going to be on the board of directors. Okay, so the consultants that have ownership stake in that office get to vote um, on who's going to be on the board of directors. And uh, the board of directors then uh, makes large decisions or high-level decisions for that particular office. Um, the managing director has, you know, con- they're being held accountable for the P&L. So um, they're the ones that get to make the decisions. It, it, there's nothing, we don't, we don't get in a room and decide, okay, we're going to spend X number of dollars on this membership or something along those lines. Um, it's, it, it's a, you know, we'll, we might discuss it. The AMD gets uh, input from the consultants at these staff meetings, but uh, the AMD makes the final call, and everybody knows that and is comfortable with that. And I guess the, the thing that I'm really trying to understand is that companies you know, say that they want to do this, right? They want to keep people involved, engender loyalty and trust, make everybody feel like they're part of the process. But then when it comes down to it, right, and there's something controversial, the managing director, whoever it is who's in power, squishes, right? And then people don't feel like, you know, then it ends up being lip service. You get what I'm going? Get, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But right. I, I think it's I think it's up to the managing director to also hear people out and not be that, um, not be quick to quash something that they maybe don't agree agree with right off the bat, right? So I, I and we've done I think a really good job of, of doing that. But ultimately, there's only one person that 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 is that is held accountable for that. So they've got to make the best decision that they can make uh, based on the information at hand. Now. Um, the way that we have set things up, you know, they get input from the consultants and, and, and see what the environment's about before they make that decision. So just to shift the conversation a little bit, tell me a little bit about how, how you have gotten the, the growth. Cause you start off by saying that talent acquisition can be a bottleneck to achieving the, the growth that you want to achieve. And then there's, you know, there's the sales side and then, you know, for you, there's the operations side, which is all this talent management. Mm-hmm. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So, talk to us a little bit about how those things intersect, how you've gone about dealing with the bottleneck issue, etc., to achieve the, the growth that you've achieved. Uh, sure. So, I, I would say first of all, um, and this is going to sound, uh, this is going to sound a little odd, but we, go ahead. We're, we're not, we're not, <laughs> we're not chasing, we're not chasing arbitrary growth numbers. So, um, I think you know, you said that you found us through the Paysetter Awards, right? And, and we certainly we applied for the Paysetter Awards, and very honored to have won. Um, a spot in the pace setter awards, but we didn't set out to say, okay, we're going to go hit X number of consultants or X number of dollars in revenue, uh, this year and next year. And so we can win a pace setter award. Um, the way that we, you know, trying to stay true to our culture, the way that we conduct businesses, we figure out, okay, how many people do we think we can hire into the office that meet our cultural standards? Uh, and also that we feel like we can assimilate into that culture of that local office without upsetting the uh, apple cart. Um, we are a, a locally focused firm, so our consultants don't travel. It's very important that they all be part of a, you know, a very cohesive team for those reasons. Now, um, as far as, you know, uh, attracting talent, I would say it's, it's hard. It's probably one of the hardest things that, uh, uh, that that we do as a business is attracting the right people to come to work for us, and uh, you know we interview a lot of folks, and uh, some of them are 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 amazing people, and and uh, you know they but they may not they may not have the same motivation or the same um, reasons for wanting to to be in business as we do, and so therefore they're not a fit, and so you gotta gotta sift through all that now. 
you know, going back to the team concept again, and uh, uh, you know, I, I I can't reiterate this enough, but you know, you got to get the you got to get your employees on board with this, and you got to get them involved with networking efforts and. Uh, reaching out to people that they know and bringing in referrals. You mean networking to find talent? Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, finding people that are like-minded so that they <clears throat> that uh, uh, you know we can find those the 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 folks that we want to work with going forward. So when you look at that that talent acquisition funnel, right? So you have all of your people who are out in the world who you know are looking for jobs, and then you have your process that brings them in, and then you have the inter in interviewing process and the final selection, where do you think you have the most trouble? Where is, where are you finding it the most difficult? Is it just identifying the people out in the world who may have the skills that you need? Is it attracting them to get them to, to actually apply? Um, is it the interview process, making sure that you're identifying and qualifying them correctly? Where, where do you think it's the most difficult? So I think we do a good job on the interview process, uh, where I would say, you know, filling the funnel at the top is, is traditionally being consistent about filling the, the funnel at the top has been, um, has been one of the toughest things. Uh, when you look at business like ours, where the majority of our successful hires are referrals or at least someone that we know, maybe not a, you know, someone that you directly work with, but somebody that you've met, you've networked with, and then they apply. Um, there's only so much time in the day for, for, for our employees or even myself. And I, I still get involved with it from time to, not from time to time. I'm, I'm pretty involved with recruiting at a high level and setting strategy, but you know, I'll even find myself out there, you know, when I find somebody that I meet on at a networking event or, um, something like that, I'll, I'll talk to them to figure out if they're a, uh, they're a fit that that's all very time consuming. And so you also have to figure out a way to augment those referrals. And so LinkedIn is a great tool, but it's only as good as the information that's put out there. So you, you end up, you know, somebody might look great on paper, but then maybe, you know, it's very hard to figure out whether they're a cultural or motivations fit for for your particular organization, just based on a LinkedIn profile. Mm. How much time do you do you guys spend in this ta talent acquisition process? You're going to say a percentage of like you know business time, or even you know your time, or somebody who's in charge of this. How, how much time do you do you actually spend to think about devoting to this? So we've got a full time person who's a lead for this, and that's that's her role is to to figure this out and and to to devote 100 percent of her time to it. Um, you know, but I think all of the managing directors spend a fair amount of time on it. Uh, you know, probably thirty to forty percent of their time is is thinking about or participating in in uh, talent acquisition at some level. Mm -hmm. And then, how does the the business development work? Because the growth had to come from both. Sure. So, uh, I would say that our clients are fiercely loyal. We've had people that uh, bring us from one client to the other. Um, we're strictly. We don't do cold calling. Everything that we sell is uh, sold through relationships and uh, and word of mouth. And so, you know, you do a really good job for somebody, and when they move uh, to another organization or or maybe even to another level within their organization that they're currently in, <clears throat> they take you with them. And so, a lot of it's been that, um, you know kind of going back to the talent acquisition piece, you know, you, you bring on good people and, you know, the folks that we're hiring are, are people that are, 
you know, have at least 10 years of experience, typically some of them as many as 20, 25 years of experience and they're well networked. They're well respected in the, in the uh, community. And so they also bring leads and that sort of thing along with, uh, with them when they come to join our firm. But, uh, I would say that, you know, a hundred percent of what we do from a business development perspective is all relationship driven sales. Mm. And so back over to the to discussing the employee employee ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, how how does an employee become an, an owner in the company? <clears throat> how does that work? So we do have we do require that you <clears throat> that you're actually with SEI or Systems Evolution uh, for a period of time before you can become an owner. Yeah, hold on a second. <clears throat> I used to talking as much as early in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so there is a, a time component to that. We want to make sure that you understand the business and you you know what you're what you're uh, either you know buying into or receiving as part of our stock incentive plan. But um, there, you know, there's like a, there's two ways that employees become owners: either through grants, which um, happen. Um, on an infrequent basis, and then they also have the ability to buy in once they've been here for a period of time. Um, we uh, we do have an ownership unit program where uh, an employee owner uh, has voting rights, obviously for the uh, for the board of directors. But then you know the the lucrative piece of it, I guess, from a financial perspective, is um, you know there's a face value for the shares of ownership units as well as uh, you know, dividends that get paid off of those uh, units as well. So there is a financial component for for it for them. I'd say, though, as lucrative as it is, the best thing that I've seen about our our ownership program is that it uh, reinforces and, and supports our culture. And so how do you think, um, you know, you said that it, it affects the culture positively. Are there any kind of challenges or drawbacks to having an employee-owned company? Um you know, so I, I think that you have to be very, I won't say it's a disadvantage, but it's more work. You, you, you have to be transparent about what's going on in the, in the firm. And it's, uh, and for that reason, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a different paradigm than, than a traditional, um, firm where, you know, you, you go, you punch a clock and, you know, there's no ownership units, um, or any ownership responsibility. But, you know, kind of getting back to the, the, the culture of the firm, the, the way that I think that the ownership program supports a culture is, you know, the, the theory of, you know, rising tides lifts all ships. And so you've got people that have a vested interest in the success of the company. They have a vested interest in the success of one another because of that, as well as the success of their clients. And so that's contagious throughout the company. And how do you develop leadership? Amongst, uh, you know, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a great question. And so I think that it starts obviously with a talent acquisition. You're looking for people that you want to be business partners with. And so, and, and that's the best way to describe it. I think when we're interviewing people is, you know, I'm looking, when I, when I talk with somebody, I'm looking at them and saying, do I want to be in business with this person or not? Um, from a leadership development perspective, I'd say I'm not a big fan of the traditional, um, you know, very organized and structured um, leadership programs where you, you know, you apply to, to be a part of it. And then uh, there's classes that you take or projects that you execute on and, and, and that sort of thing. My, um, 
my preference is that, you know, you identify people that, that step up naturally and, and take leadership roles just where there's a gap. Um, then you, you, the way that you nurture that and I guess, uh, help develop that leadership skill is you give them an environment that they can make mistakes in and not be judged or penalized for and have them grow through those exercises. Hmm. And, um, how do you, you know, Jason would have been here, um, how do you interact with the other other leaders in the organization? So your other counterparts in the different offices. Well, he's, they're no longer counterparts. Yeah, they were my counterparts. Yeah, right? yeah. In the other offices. Um, so as a managing director, I you know I I was constantly talking to my peers, um, and you know we'd meet frequently. We were talking. We were on the phone a couple of times a week. We had a uh, formalized scheduled meeting, uh, and we were discussing the business of, of what was going on and and. Uh, trying to help each other out it it was it's a very collaborative and um supportive environment i guess uh so that people are people are helping one another out even even at the, at the top level all the way down to you know to a consultant level um in the trenches at a client and uh so it's no different with, with our management team but uh as far as we also have leadership summits and that sort of thing where we bring up specific topics and usually now that's my job is to define what those topics are going to be where I see uh, where we need more attention and that sort of thing. And so we meet a couple of times a year for those as well. Just listening to you, it sounds to me like one of the I'm listening for how you actually get your values to be you know, in, in the culture and in the way people operate and, and interact with each other. And it sounds to me like a lot of it is modeling. So you will, you know, the leadership models the behavior that they want, um, the consultants and their, the folks who are working with them to adopt, right? So. Correct. Right. So was that a conscious decision? Do you guys talk about what it means to be loyal and trustworthy or what it means to have, to collaborate and have commitment, et cetera? Or has that just pretty much come organic, become an organic part of the organization. So we do talk about it. We talk about what uh, we do talk about, it, but maybe not as an in, as intentionally as the way that you're just you, that maybe you're thinking about it. It's certainly something that comes up on our our management calls indirectly, you know, but more so from examples and not oh well, here we need to model you know you know collaboration here or you know it's more like okay we got this problem, let's let how how do we fix it. What, how have we fixed it in the past as a company? What's part of our culture? And um, and that's, I guess, the best way that we model it. You know, you see it in practice and then therefore it, it, hopefully it's contagious. Mm. And have you ever had a situation where you've had, you know, a leader that wasn't actually conforming to your values or situations where people may not, you know, be um, living up to the standards? And how do you handle that? Absolutely. Um, so, sure. I mean, we're we're far from perfect. Um, and you know, we've made, uh, what, you know, hiring mistakes in the past and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, they've been coached out or, um, you know, we've parted ways in, in a positive manner, but I mean, yeah, that happens from time to time, not very often, but it does happen. Mm. Um, so I would love to just hear, is there anything that you think, um, that's new that's happening in your practice or the, the office that you think the, that listeners would be, would be interested to know about? 
Um, so I would say, well, first of all, I hate to go back to this, but we are growing and, uh, we, we do have seven offices and, and we're, we're, we're hiring in all, all seven offices. And so we're in Boston, New York, Atlanta, obviously, uh, Cincinnati, Chicago, Dallas, and, and Phoenix, Scottsdale. And so, uh, I would say, you know, if, uh, if, if you're out, if you're a listener out there and that, and this sounds appealing to you, please, uh, feel free to reach out and, and, uh, and get in touch with me. I'd be happy to talk with you about career opportunities at Systems Evolution. What is, and specifically, what are you looking for? So, uh, business and technology consultants, uh, we've had a lot of success hiring from industry. We've had a lot of success hiring, uh, out of the military. My background was uh, from the military. A lot of our leaders within the organization came from a military background. Um, but, uh, you know, by, by far, I guess the, the easiest fit is typically somebody that's, that's consulted in the past. Um, that's not a prerequisite, but it's certainly something that, uh, uh, you know, is again, part of the litmus test. Okay. This person's going to be successful because they've done it in, in other organizations, um, similar to ours. So do you not hire from right out of college? Or? We do not. So uh, the folks, I, I've taken a shot on some folks, and it's always it, it's almost always worked out for me <clears throat> that have, uh, you know, as few as maybe six or seven years out of college. But uh, typically, you know, we're looking for that, you know, 10 to 15, 20-year uh, experience level. So you don't have many millennials working for you? Uh, not a lot. No. So, uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's been the subject of a lot of conversations. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I wish I had some, something intelligent to say about that, but I, I just don't, <laughs> I, I don't, uh, you know, and I think for us, it still would be, um, you know, I, I've read some of the the stuff. Okay, how do you uh, how do you hiring hiring millennials and the, the the either the challenges or the advantages of that? And I think it would still boil down to us: is are, are they a, are they a cultural fit? Are their motivations aligned with ours um, in order to join the organization? So great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been wonderful having you. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And if folks want to get in touch with you to to hear more about. Um, anything at Systems Evolutions, how can they do that? Uh, you know, my LinkedIn profile is out there. Feel free to look me up there and contact me through LinkedIn or uh, you, uh, I think you, I think you guys have my email address Absolutely. and you can post that on the, on the website. Very good. Thanks so much for Great. being here. Absolutely. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.